Folks, back here, my first podcast, and uh, where are we at, Commissioner Crum? We are at the ad, admin or Alaska office building here in Juneau. So this is, I should know where we are, because whenever I walk from the Driftwood through the state office building, I come to the elevator here, and then I go to the first floor, and then I walk right to the Capitol. Yeah. So. Most people know the SOB. This is the building that connects to the SOB. So oh, The SOB? Yeah, state office building. Oh, I didn't, ooh, I never heard it called that before. That's that big brick building, right? But I know state office building, building yeah. but SOB is a... Good term for it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a while. Um, first, I want to talk about, I didn't realize this until you, because I've known you for a while through, I, mean, I used to work at oil and gas for, mm-hmm. for a while. And when you got appointed commissioner, I was kind of like, because you worked with your, your business, family business with the training, mm-hmm. the uh, construction training. But you actually um, went to school for public health, right? Yeah, that I did. So, uh, you know, we do have a company that I own with my family, Northern Industrial Training, but it's known as like, truck driving welding. That's a lot easier to put on a on a commercial. Um, what I ran actually was the business consulting side. So this was deals that we would have with pipeline companies, oil and gas, and that's where you saw me around a lot. So I'd run that division and it morphed into roles to where I was doing a lot of uh, organizational stuff and strategic leadership and kind of planning. And it was just, you know, Alaska specific kind of items, working with these groups, dealing with Alaskan based issues, workforce development planning, long-term project planning, little things like that. Um, I had my master's in public health from Johns Hopkins. Um, that helped when we were doing projects, working with some of the big boys in the oil companies. Um, you know, having those letters behind your name really, when you get these guys rotating up through Texas, kind of helps a little bit your credibility so you're not just yeah, a they little see the Alaskan email. boy. They see the signature, they go, oh, I'll talk to that guy. Yeah. But you actually um, went to, you played football, right, at Northwestern? Yeah, I managed to to work my way to, to go to Northwestern University and play football. And, you know, I'm I was the little guy there. You're pretty, but you're a pretty big guy, though. That's normally yes, but my view of the world is quite skewed because my friends called me shorty. Northwestern's Division One. I, I mean, they're pretty. Kind yep, of, we're in the pack. What is it? Big Ten. Big Ten. Okay, so you were I assume lineman or? Yeah, I went down as I was a linebacker in high school. Uh, got recruited as a fullback. Everett got down there, and nine offensive linemen got hurt uh, that first fall camp, and I'm way down on the depth chart showing up, and they say, "Hey, we need somebody to come help out on the old line for scout team." And I was like, sure, I'll do it. Never played before. They literally gave me a foam football, and they'd show the play, and they'd say, all right, crumb step left, crumb step right. That, that was you're all like I would do. like a guard or a tackle? As or? a center. Oh, you're a center. Wow. So the quarterback would stand behind me with a football in his hands. I'd have a foam football, and they'd do the snap count, and I'd do a fake snap and take a couple steps. But they liked me, and they asked me, they said, you know what? We think you can probably end up playing over here. So This is your freshman year? Freshman year. So I, I stayed, and over the next year, they had me gain 50 pounds. Is you work out. I was going to um, ask you if they, yeah, if you gained a lot of weight. Yeah, trying to get it to you know play Big Ten size football and um, worked out. Ended up uh, starting quite a few games over the last couple of years and had a ton of fun. So did you wait? Did you go originally on a scholarship for a different position, or you just kind of walk on? Or I was a preferred walk on, so I had a guaranteed spot on the team, and uh, then um, it worked out nice. You know, I was initially going to Air Force Academy. Um, oh, you know, I wanted, I, w- I really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. In and high school. I, I had that, uh, I had committed to them, was working on my uh, full appointment. And in December, my senior year of high school, the coaches called and said, Hey, we had too many guys commit, so we can't guarantee you a spot on the team. And at that time, I was like, If I don't have the athlete exemption for weight, there's no way I, I'm going to go there and be a regular cadet. So 
I was oh, like, yeah, because of the height and weight. Yeah. yeah, so I opened that up, started applying to a couple different schools real quick, and um, had some uh, some good smaller schools, some Ivy League, because I'm you know good student up here in Alaska. Everybody loves Alaskans because you, you, you can't towards their demographics. Yeah, right, because we only have, I mean, 700,000. Yeah. I mean, Chicago's got what, millions uh, of Yeah, I people. think it's like Metro is like four or five million. Yeah. But it was uh, – um, Northwestern reached out. I was like, you know, it's a good mix of academics and a chance to see if I can play big-time ball, and it, it worked out. So did you ever have any NFL aspirations or – Had the opportunity at the end. Uh, we just do our, 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 our campus pro day to where uh, you get invited. The scouts come and the guys from other schools and people who have, you know, at least an option of being looked at. Did a workout there, but got my workout in, checked the box, and I was done. I was ready to go. Joked that it was uh, – I was one play away from the glue factory. <laughs> took, it was to so some, much so much effort mentally and physically to play that I, I was ready to move on. There were some big big boys there, huh? Yeah, well, I was well, no joke on the little guy when uh, so the, the I was the left guard my senior year and the left tackle. So I'm six one and a half. The left tackle was six foot eight and a half. Show you the that's size a, like, difference. It's like our governor, yeah. tall, big man, except uh, probably eighty pounds more than the governor. So, so you were start. You were like four years starter. You were playing, or were you? No, I ended up. Uh, so I, I played uh, three or four, I, think, I think it was yeah. Four, I got playing time over the course of four years. I ended up starting like sixteen games or eighteen games like that. Wow. Yeah. So you were done. You went to went to graduate school. Or you came back to Alaska. Came back to Alaska. I was that uh, born and raised Alaskan kid. Uh, never thought I was going to come back. I don't think my family thought I was going to come back, but. It was one of those I was gone for my first time. You know, you go down there for fall camp in August of your freshman year. Um, we went to a bowl game, so I didn't get to come home until January. And so that was the longest stretch I'd ever been away from home. Especially but, Chicago. I yeah. Mean, that's a fun, my parents are from Waukegan. Oh, yeah? So I, I grew up in New Mexico, but we went back home a lot for my yeah. parents, grandparents, and, you know, aunts and uncles. So I spent a lot of time in Chicago growing up. But So you know it's flat. Oh, yeah. And that nothing. Just that hill, threw me Like maybe off. a hill. They, say, like, they call it a mountain. You roll a marble across the state, right? And it was that first trip back home in January, even though it's, you know, it's, it's typical, terrible Alaska January weather. But I was like, oh, yeah, this is home. And it was from that point on I knew I'd finish school and I'd come back to Alaska. Well, so then you went to Johns Hopkins yeah, after? After graduating, um, finished, I came back to Alaska. I was working at the family company for a bit. And then uh, I had done pre-med in undergrad, taking the MCAT, and just decided, I was like, you know, Metal, it's not for me at this Dr. point. Dr. Crumb. Yeah. Almost. So I always had an interest in it, and I was trying to figure out, like, how can I actually best apply this? Like, where was opportunities in Alaska? And this is where it kind of came together and called up the Johns Hopkins program, and um, it was a good fit. Talked my way into the program and went and got my Master of Science in Public Health. That was a couple-year deal? or Yeah. So so how did you – because I'll be honest, like, I knew you from kind of – I saw you around oil and gas – events rdc for you know several years i had seen you around and i just kind of associated you with with the um nit right mm -hmm. yeah and then you got appointed commissioner and i was i mean i was kind of like well it's i mean where, you know where'd that come from so i didn't realize you had the um the johns hopkins but how, no. i mean did you kind of express interest in that or did i mean yeah. i know you kind of knew the governor but how did you kind of get that he you know he had initially when he was talking about what commissioners he wanted he was trying to find people who could work within that, but brought different skill sets than would normally take these roles. And in this one in particular, um, he had you know, put the bug in. He's like, you know, you should think about this. And over the course of the next year, I'd, I did think about it. And, actually, and I ended up applying. They, they interviewed other people for these roles. Because I, I had reported, this is over a year ago, but 
I mean, there was people saying you were going to be maybe labor commissioner. Remember, yeah. I had kind of put that out there saying that's what people were saying. I had actually, so I did apply actually for, and I asked, I said, if I, I would get it, I would like to do this role. Because what he was looking this, for. The Hess, the Hess role. Hess role, yeah. So normal uh, normal people, my predecessors, they all come here. They're either uh, medical professionals, they've worked in the department, or they come from hospital administration. And what he was looking for is he wanted somebody who could relate to certain aspects of the department. So the public health side, doing emergency response, got experience that stuff work with large budgets on large projects, but strategic thinking, Alaskan-specific, who's not married to any one situation, who just come in with an objective view. And uh, that was his goal for this, and that's what I think I've been able to bring because this is a department. It's a big, like 3,700 employees. Oh, I was going to say, it's, I think, the biggest biggest uh, number of employees. I think it's biggest budget, too. It could be. It's up there with Deed. Um, it's just, it's, there's a lot of people here and a lot of expertise, and so my job isn't to come in and reinvent the wheel. It's to you know, help the, enable them and support them to do what they can do. And, you know, we came in and it was like mission focus is like the department is to promote and protect the health of all Alaskans. And then every other division that we have has its own specific mission. It was just to reiterate to everyone, what is the mission? Who are we trying to serve and how do we do that mm-hmm. better? And that was the goal. I did a podcast with a Dr. Ann Zink a few months ago and she's a, she's a chief medical officer. Man. And I met her through uh, Becky Holtberg at the coffee shop. And I was chatting with her, and I was like, oh, my God, i got to do a podcast with you. And, um, man, she's real smart. She is uh, just a truly dynamic person. I am so grateful that, that she came to work with us. I, I waited six months for her. She it, was, tur- it turns out she was on this uh, year-long trip you yeah. know, with her family, and she told me that along that trip, because um, I, I told her about the podcast, she goes, oh, yeah, I listened to your podca- podcast when I was traveling. All the-. And I said, you know, I can see the podcast breakdown of like where the listens and it's like 98%, you know, America, but sometimes there's like these weird, like Thailand or she was like in Bhutan. You know, and- yeah. Like there's like, you know, New Zealand, Vietnam. I'm like, I'm like, maybe those were some, maybe that was some of you listening to the podcast. That's pretty much true. It was awesome. Yeah. I first, uh, her name came up in January after I'd taken this role of 19 and, uh, I called her, reached out to her and, um, we talked and hit it off and I was like, so when can you take? And she goes, well, I'm not back in Alaska until July. And I said, Okay, we're going to make this work. And found a great interim chief medical officer and Dr. Lily Liu. She stepped up to the plate um, and led and did some dynamic things for us. Uh, but we're just so grateful that we got well, Anne, especially, you know, with a lot of all the things going on here in Alaska. She's a great focus. Well, and then there was just the, the, the press conference that uh, you got to talk. You got to talk to the press guy because I didn't get the email about it. <laughs> I, w- I would have come, but I saw later um, it was you and then and Dr. Zink was, I think, in Anchorage, right? Yeah. Um, but it was about this kind of coronavirus deal and this plane that stopped over. And mm-hmm. it seemed like there was a little bit, I mean, it almost seemed to me like some of the people were media was trying to play it up as like, oh my God, you know, outbreaks coming. But you had talked about kind of the protocols in place, the state, maybe talk a little bit about that and yeah. then what, how you guys dealt with maybe the media aspect of that airplane. You know, the, this is a novel thing and it, and it is literally co- referred to as the novel coronavirus because it's in the same family or realm as SARS and MERS um, that have occurred. And it's one of those rapid responses that we've gotten better as a country to responding quicker to these situations to stop the spread beforehand. Um, you know, throughout this whole process, we got this call. I got a phone call early Saturday morning from my region uh, 10 administrator said, Hey, uh, we may have a plane coming from China repatriation of repatriation of American citizens. And I was like, okay. Um, let, oh, neat. can we do another call here in an hour and let me get some other people around? And that was where I, I brought in our public health director, Heidi Hedberg, brought in Dr. Zink. 
Um, and we listened to the calls and we activated our emergency operations center, which is to really the whole point of that is to then bring in all focus people for communications aspect. What information have you heard? What's our capacity? And then we did a quick measure of a state's readiness state. Um, and then we reached back out and said, you know, this is what we can do. And we really held our, our, our federal partners to that. So, you know, that we appreciate we're going to do what we can for American citizens, but we're also going to make sure we have, we have to take care of Alaskans. And so we found the right balance. Um, the airport facilities personnel were fantastic. You know, I don't think a lot of people understand the North Terminal is its own separate building. Far yeah, away. Mostly international. Yeah. And uh, we were able to, you know, isolate that out, get the screening process through, get everything in, worked with the municipality, the health department, got a couple of the hospitals really spun up, had all the guidance from CDC, and we it was a successful project. So what was, what was the main reason? It was just refueling or was it um, the, the processing? Actu- it was the actual plane that they got. The model that the particular model didn't have the range to go beyond Anchorage. And that's, you know, the new planes have that longer range, but, yeah. you know, up until like in the 90s, Anchorage was, I mean, we're still a huge cargo hub, and mm. the governor talks about that a lot, but um, the older planes, I mean, they had to stop in Anchorage because there was just un- going to Asia. There wasn't enough fuel capacity, you know, distance capacity. Yeah, and that's that's what, what this situation was. This plane was made before we were born, and th- this was its range. It's, so this is like a charter? These people they, chartered? Yeah, a- they chartered. It originated, uh, I think it was out of Michigan. Came, They take it from Michigan. They, they brought in these seats because it was a cargo plane, and they brought in the seats but bolted them all down, did their whole process or strapped them, however they do it, landed in Anchorage for fueling, went to Wuhan, picked up everybody, turned around, came back, and then, then ended up down in California at Marsh, I think it was Marsh Air Force Base. Wow. That's a Marsh or March. Yeah. Wild story. It was a crazy spin. Um, you know, this it's an evolving situation too. We this is gonna change. Um, the US just actually announced national health emergency on this. But the primary goal is is how do we look at our protocols? It's to get all state health officials on high alert to let us know what we're doing with travelers incoming, how we're gonna track them, and how do we all work together. And that's part of what our goal mm-hmm. is. You know, not to get too technical, but one of these things, I have the benefit of having a ton of really smart people, epidemiologists and doctors who, who coach me up. And one thing that we were just discussing this morning was that it, the mortality rate for this right now is about 2 to 3%. Um, that's more than influenza, but influenza is much more widespread. SARS, when it occurred, was about 10%, and uh, MERS was another one that was a 35% mortality rate. Oh, it's like the outbreak movie. Yeah. And so there's, it is, yes, there is some danger to this, but we want to try to control the spread as much as possible. And that's why we're trying to make sure we're open on communication, telling everybody what's going on to make sure they understand. And really it's, it's wash your hands for 20 seconds. Make sure, if, you know, you're not coughing, you're keeping everything covered. We're trying to make sure it's that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back a little bit to kind of when you first got appointed, you kind of have a, you, you had a maybe a little rougher confirmation process than some of the other commissioners. I think you were 35. Is that right? You probably know. Yeah, it was It was pretty close. I actually don't know the exact number. I think, some, I, I, think I blacked out that day. Because, <laughs> I mean, some of them had 59 or 60, but yeah. then there was a few that were. So how much of that was due to, like, you being maybe a little unknown? Then there was the API stuff. I mean, there was a lot going on. There was, uh, you know, stepping into this, I haven't been afraid to make some changes right away. And so we stirred the pot up a little bit. Um and uh, went through the process, but you know it, it's all settled down. Got a good relationship with uh, even those who may have voted against me. We're trying to make sure, and it, get, it goes back to what are we trying to do? Who are we trying to help? When are we trying to get in the services? And that's what I've maintained my focus on. So I hope that uh, you know those who voted against me, I may have changed their minds at this point. Mm-hmm. So what, what's kind of let's talk a little bit about API. I mean, I know early on that was a big yeah. uh, issue in Alaska for Alaskans. 
And I mean, I, I followed API a little bit before, and I mean, I kind of knew that API had a lot of problems. Where's API now? I know WellPath came, came in. Are they still? Yeah, we brought in a, a fantastic partner in WellPath to help us manage the hospital. There had been a turnover of uh, multiple CEOs in a short time frame. We couldn't hold down leadership positions there. It was uh, really, there's a lot of very good staff there, but it was just one of those kind of aspects. It didn't get the attention and focus that it needed over a number of years. Um, along with some other system breakdowns just across our healthcare and behavioral health continuum that really kind of led to this such a pressure and a boiling point on API that it, it just kind of reached this level thing. At the low, it was down to like uh, 19 beds. It's an 80-bed facility, but your medical, your census count and your clinical team, it was only 19 people. Well, you know, I, so I did, I don't know if you saw our video, we did a video last summer on kind of the homelessness issue in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And I made yeah. it with uh, my friend Scott and Carolyn. We went out there and we were supposed to do a five-minute deal and it ended up being a 30-minute video because we, we'd seen these camps and we had kind of, I started to figure out that the further you get away from downtown, I mean, the closer to the downtown or the, the, the much more kind of mentally ill or maybe addicted folks, but the further away you get, you get people that are kind of functional, who live in the woods and who have kind of camps. But there's always this element of, of one element is the mental health problem. And, and Christopher Constant on the Anchorage Assembly described kind of East Chester as API, the API waiting room. Because some of those folks, you know, can't get. And then I did another podcast with a doctor. Um, I guess she was a, a, ner- a psychiatric nurse from actually from WellPath, and we talked about how you know a lot of people are CPR certified or you know first aid certified, but we're not trained to deal with somebody who's mentally ill. Correct. It's it's mostly scary for a lot of us to to see that, and mm-hmm. and I mean, it seems like such a cultural, societal thing to to, to move in a direction where we can properly deal with folks that are mentally ill and get get them to well, identify and then get them the help they need. And maybe that's, you know, part of the issue is being able to identify it. It is. And it's, we really, it's, we've been trying to prop up the whole system just to identify these gaps and build it up. You know, now we're up to a 50 bed or 50 bed census counted API, um, stabilize it. You go in and you look at the staff now and there's a lot of smiles now. It's, it feels different because we are on this upward trajectory. Um, the staff are being supported and we're just trying to work on that. You know, one of the, we are working through a feasibility study that's going to evaluate different mul- management options. What, you know, status quo, a couple different things that we can do. And we're going to bring this out. We're going to have to sit down and talk with our union partners and come to a solution for how do, how do we move this forward? Because we have to have a functional API that is good because that's the keystone for the rest of the behavioral health system in Alaska. And once that's taken care of, then we can move on. I always joke that API is kind of like the eye of Sauron. It's just like all of the focus and all of mm-hmm. the energy is just staring at that place. And, you know, really... If 30 more beds, that's not going to make or break the healthcare system in Alaska. We've got to do a lot of work elsewhere. And so I'm trying to get other other people to draw their attention, which is, you know, and, and we're responding. Last year, Fairbanks Memorial Hospital opened up a behavioral health unit inside their hospital. Um, Matsu Regional just opened one just a couple weeks ago. So one of the things um, I, I spoke with the, the uh, what's Kevin Huckshorn, uh, psychiatric nurse, she was, I was saying, what do other states do, other countries maybe? And she talked about, um, kind of a model where, you know, if somebody's mentally ill, instead of, you know, maybe having the, I actually gave a, an example of, of, um, many, many years ago, I was like 18 or 19. I was just moved to Alaska and I came home and, uh, my, she kind of described it as, as, you know, having, being on like some substance and you, you don't realize it, you know, it's like in your mind. And I made a, a kind of story about, I came home and somebody had cooked some, brown, my roommate cooked some brownies. You want some, you want some? And I didn't realize they, they had put pot in them, you know, I didn't know that. And I'm, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, freaking out like what's wrong with me you know why do I feel like this and 
She goes, you know, imagine if that happened to you and you didn't know what was causing it. And then imagine somebody called the police. And then, you know, like, yeah. how, how are you going to react? And she was saying that a model is instead of taking people right, right away to the hospital or to the police station, there's kind of a mental health place where you go and almost triage. You know, is this person dangerous? Do they need to go to the you know, police? Do they need to go to the hospital? Do, do they need to just talk to somebody? Do they need, you know, and she was saying that seems to be a model that works pretty well in places where they've they've utilized it. Yeah, it's the uh, sometimes referred to as uh, the crisis now model, as they call it in Arizona. Um, it's this 23-hour crisis stabilization center. We, you've, you've got these mental health kind of like intervention teams that is uh, a peer and a mental health professional. They can go out and address situations with individuals. Sometimes police, they can pick somebody up. You know, some family calls and, hey, somebody's doing violent threats. We think they're going to hurt themselves. And a cop just being a, a good human being doesn't want this person to hurt themselves, but he also knows you can't just drop them off in the street. So sometimes we found police officers were driving people around for a couple hours just to get them to calm down. Yeah, I've heard that. And so we really need these guys to have a good space to go. And so that's uh, one of these crisis stabilization centers. They can be brought there. It's a low-energy therapeutic environment to where they can come in, get stabilized, get some direct care, and then they can be referred out to other community-based yeah, services. She was saying it's not scary like a police department or maybe like an – you know, at hospital where all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're checked in and like, you're kind of there. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it seems to be pretty nice. I know that, uh, um, we said a couple teams from Alaska have been able to go down the mental health trust paid for it. And, uh, I think it was the Milbank foundation paid for a group as well. And it was a five minute warm handoff from a, a police officer bringing somebody in, you know, they didn't, they're not going to be charged with a crime, but they need somewhere to go. Staff came out, take them, took care of them. And then just like that. So is this, is this more kind of like a city level thing, a state level? I mean, is this a, maybe a combination of both for, it's a combination of both as to there's some different lifts that are going to be involved because they call it the four pillars of the system. Um, RI international just worked with the state and the behavior division of behavioral health, which is uh, in Hess, um, along with some dollars from the mental health trust to finish this big analysis is to figure out where do we need these centers built in Alaska. Um, so they released that study, which was a good report. And uh, now we're working with the Mental Health Trust. You know, they, They've said they would be willing to put up some capital dollars to, to help build a facility to get that forward. And we'd like some other you know partner groups to come in and run this. Cool. Because one thing with the new 1115 waiver under Medicaid that we have is we actually have... What's, a, what's that about? It's uh, Section 1115 of the Social Security Act allows you to put forward various options that you can change. So we call it a waiver, 1115 waiver, that you can change specifically of how your state delivers Medicaid services. Alaska has been working on this for a couple of years, and we got approval for an 1115 waiver for behavioral health issues, which includes SUD treatment as well. Um, and so substance use disorder. Okay. And uh, under I was say, yeah, a lot of acronyms, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of numbers. Um, and that's one thing about this job. There's a lot of acronyms in. That's, oh, I, I hear stuff in committees. I'm like, what are they talking the, about? Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a mechanism now under this waiver to actually pay. You get to get reimbursed through Medicaid to pay for this service. So it's uh, something pretty neat that we're looking for. We're encouraging partners to look at Like, hey, come invest here and run this program. From the state's perspective, you know, we have to build the license type, make it easy for them to prop up. But this is like just like you said. It's a good good system that'll fill a, a major gap we have in our behavior, behavioral health system just to kind of help people stabilize. It is, you know, Alaska has such unique challenges compared to other states, you know, most other states. Um, is it, does that create unique problems for Medicaid compared to a place like, you know, New York or you know, Texas or? You know, the, sometimes yes. Um, but then the other time is we've actually got, unlike other states, a very robust 
uh, tribal health or, or system. Mm-hmm. No other state has it like we do. Um, a lot of times when you go to other states that have reservations, most of their tribal health care clinics are just on those reservations. Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in New Mexico, and there's oh, a lot so of yeah. reservations there. Yep. So in, Ala- in Alaska, we have Metlacatla is the only one. The rest, they're all across the board. And it's to our benefit because there's such a sophisticated system that we've got tribal health clinics um, all around the state. And they're the primary provider in these clinics for both tribal health beneficiaries and non-beneficiaries for Medicaid clinics. It's, it, they've built up a system to where we improve access to health care around the state. So that's uh, it's a good part because it's one of those things is you, we have to make sure we manage the budget as appropriate as possible. And so like our goal is we, we're preaching uh, um, program integrity, which is make sure that we're running the programs as best as possible, which means that the people who are receiving services are the ones who are truly eligible and really need it, and that the providers are doing everything they can to make sure the system is ran correctly. Because this is a, we, our goal is to not kick people off the program, is to get people the help they need to then give them the boost to climb up, mm-hmm, right. you know, climb that economic ladder. So what's, uh, what's been maybe kind of the biggest challenge of, of being the commissioner and what's been one of the biggest maybe rewards? The uh, biggest challenge is the fact that this is just, this is a, this is a big old. It's like a labyrinth. Just, yeah, it's a labyrinth and it's, you know, it's like a super tanker almost to where like. You, you want to turn it on a dime to try to do something else, but like honestly, just achieving one or two degree shift in trajectory is a win. And that, that was the hardest thing to come, you know, the first six months to realize we couldn't just do it all at once. But how do we start changing the direction a little bit? I'd say the biggest win has been uh, really just getting to know all of the staff and all the facilities and just seeing the mission we carry out. Um, really encourage all of our leadership to really go out into the community because doing work like this, you get really tied up into how difficult and stressful it is. And I always try to, like, say, go out there and see who are we actually trying to serve. Make sure you maintain that relationship. So, like myself, I always go back uh, when I'm back in Wasilla to my house, um, the Matsu Homeless Youth. You know, they'll sit down, have dinner, um, you know, buy, buy meals, and just talk with some of the kids there and the youth and their plans. Or I'll go to our uh, juvenile justice facilities and talk with some of the kids about their transition. You see, like, the hope on their faces because, you know, we're working towards these kids with a very good plan to move forward in That's their life. That's good stuff. you got to put that on social media, man. you got to It's pretty take cool. A picture, yeah. it's, it's one of those things, too, is, like, I, we do that for our own internal just, you know, this is why we do it. But you also don't want to. I don't know. I'm trying not to get too much leverage off of the kids, right? It's, are, uh, yeah, it's see, they are that. kids, and that's that balance. But it's good. You're, I mean, it's good you're doing that. I think yeah. it's good people know you're engaging like that. Uh, so you spend a lot of time in Juno during session, but but not during session. Are you more Anchorage based or more Anchorage based? Uh, go to Fairbanks quite a bit, um, and there's a bunch of offices in Wasilla and Palmer as well. Um, did some tours around uh, around the state. Travel budget got cut this last year, so we've had to limit where we can go. But uh, try to, you know, we got Bethel and Nome and North Slope Boroughs, got some good areas, and just trying to get around there. Um, I've been able to go to Ketchikan, hopefully go to Petersburg here soon. Now that I'm in Juneau as a base, I'm going to try to bounce around a little bit. You yeah, probably before I traveled you know, with your old job kind of quite a bit. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe more, more North Slope. I was still all over. It was a nice thing. I've, I've been to quite a few uh, villages around Alaska. So what, what are kind of some of the focuses for this year, this 2020? 
Um, it's really pushing our alignment, making sure that uh, we are as efficient as possible in what we do. So we're sliding behavior health over into uh, one side. So it's all in line with Medicaid. So integrate into one platform. That just makes it easier to respond across the board. You know, one thing we did ask for is uh, we asked the governor for an increment. He put it in the, in his budget um, so we can actually get a, a third deputy commissioner here to oversee directly OCS, Office of Children's Services and Juvenile Justice. These are two groups that um, fantastic employees, a very important mission, but they haven't had the support over time that they need to really succeed at what they do. Um, there's a lot of public outcry, and there always is about OCS. It's one of those situations you're never in a good spot, right? It's the if you if you if you do the right if you do what your job says to do, then you took a kid from their home, and then if you leave a kid, then you're somebody who encourages bad things happen to kids. It's, it's like this really terrible well, if you, catch if you, twenty-two. If you leave a, if you, Probably nobody wants to be somebody who left a kid that then something horrible happens. Yeah. That's probably the... And I always tell the staff, I said, I'm not emotionally equipped to be a a caseworker for OCS, so I applaud them for what they do. And, you know, so I think just giving them support to really get out there, make some decisions, get creative, and work with the staff there, that's, that's one of those focuses. You know, we've done a lot over this last year. We got some major IT projects coming through. It'll, you know, it's to meet federal compliance for our Medicaid program, but it also help clean up the system. It'll be better, you know, keeping providers in check on this one particular program. And another one is just a faster asset verification because that's one of those things. You know, actually, if I can give one big, one big thing. Uh, oh, yeah, whatever you our, want, buddy. Our backlog uh, for public assistance, we had applications, people who had applied to come into public assistance, and that's our single point of entry for all heating assistance, senior benefits, that's all under Medicaid. Has? Yeah. Oh, wow. SNAP, TANF, there's a food stamps, all this kind of stuff. It was up to 28,000 when we took over. Um, that, that, was, was the, that was the backlog? The backlog. And so people were waiting for 90 days, four months, whatever, to get an answer. And I was like, we cannot do this. And so we pushed hard on this. We put some new leadership in at public assistance, empowered them to make decisions and staff to run through. Now we got a backlog under 500. Wow, so that's so a get to, major reduction. Yeah, if someone's reaching out to public assistance, at that point in time, they need help, they need an answer. Whether it's yes or whether it's no, they need to know as soon as possible so they can move on to the next option. And that's part of the goal. So, I mean, how'd you... Maybe not getting into the weeds, but what were the kind of mechanisms of cutting it down? So I mean, that's a pretty substantial reduction. It is. We uh, we formed a great partnership with Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. They actually allowed us to co-locate eligibility technicians at Alaska Native Medical Center. Oh, so people don't have to go somewhere else. Correct. Ease in the process. So they coming through, um, we could actually either correct information on people who came through and then give it administrative decisions. Um, sometimes there was duplicate applications. They're sitting there pending, and they just needed some administrative oversight. And that was just to work with staff, said, what are the roadblocks you have? And the whole point is, you know, going through that backlog, it wasn't shedding people from the system. It was just making sure that people were covered. So I think our numbers have stayed pretty much the same. It's just getting rid of those application process or processing them faster. How many employees? You said 3,700? 3,700. Damn. That's, I mean, that's more than it's a bear. I, mean, that, I think Alaska's biggest company doesn't have that many employees. I don't, you know, it's, yeah, that's true. I don't know. It's, it's a lot of people. It's a ton of people. So you're here in June. I mean, everybody probably sees you, knows you as commissioner. I mean, do you interact with people all the time? or I mean, I'm sure you have your people who report to you directly. but Yeah, I try to. I, I try to actually go out and see. Pop in. Hey, pop in from and, here. And uh, we do this uh, this letter, you know, strike from the commissioner's desk. And my communications team put a headshot on the letter. 
And so I'll have oh, people, so, they can, so they can see you. And I'll have people sometimes at some events walk up to me and say, hey, Commissioner, I work for you. It's like, oh, you read the letter. I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, even if 10% of people read it, that's 370 people. I know. It's a big, pretty good distribution. <laughs> so um, it's just, it's. I try to make a point to go around, see different facilities, try to understand what people do, and just like, what can I do from the commissioner's office level, from a leadership team, to help your job be a little bit easier so you can provide uh-huh. these services better. And understand, you know, this is a department. You're here for a reason. You like to serve people. There's there's a lot of individuals here that it's a hard job, but they're here because they care. And you know, so what can I do to make it better? That's that's already half the bottle. Getting somebody who wants to be here. I mean, that's a hard thing from an employer standpoint. But if they're all they want to be here now, let them do their job easier. How do you do that? That's just leadership and support. You got to send out the podcast link once the podcast goes up. See, yeah. just listen to the commissioner. Yeah, that's, that's probably not a bad idea. Well, um, yeah, I really appreciate you doing this. And like I said, the podcast with uh, Doctor Zink was great. She actually um, shamed me for not getting a flu shot. Um, not because I'm anti-vax. I actually have all my vaccinations. But growing up, my dad got the flu shot once, and he got really sick. And I always equated that to the flu shot. And she said, "Well, first of all, not true." Second of all, I'll get a flu shot. So I don't know if you heard or watched, but we did a, a Dr. Zane gave me a flu shot and Paxson, my friend Paxson, on Facebook Live. She called and told me after she did it. She goes, Jeff's taken care of now. Yeah, she, she uh, <laughs> basically, so we t- had a little conversation about the flu shot. And yeah. I don't know, it was kind of an irrational. I just always kind of equated flu shot to getting sick. And, and then she's like, that's like the biggest myth out there with yeah. the flu shot. So I got it and uh, I'm great. I feel nice. good. No flu. So hopefully I don't ever get the flu. Stay strong. Well, thanks again, Commissioner Crum. And I'm sure we'll keep seeing you in the Capitol. And uh, maybe we'll do another one of these down the road. If you have any of your uh, awesome, you know, Dr. Zink type employees, I'd love to do a podcast because she was great. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. You were good too, buddy. So appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.